0: Welcome to the Kitchen Table podcast. My name is Sue Bradley. I have created this podcast as I love a good old yarn. Stories for me are the language of community. It is what weaves us all together. And in telling and sharing stories, we learn what makes us similar and what connects us all. Most ideas come into reality because they come from the heart of someone who wants to create change to stand for something bigger than themselves. The Kitchen Table podcast is where we can all come together to connect in community and listen and be inspired by our guests talking about their knowledge and experiences in nutrition, health, growing food and care of country. I would also like to acknowledge the traditional owners and ancestors of this land we now gather on, where we can celebrate together as one learning from each other Through cultural practices, wisdom, and law. So I invite you to grab a cup of warmth and love, find a comfortable place to relax, and tune in to today's episode at the kitchen table. Hope you enjoy. In this episode of the kitchen table, I get to sit with Joshua Gilbert. He's been on my list for quite a while to enjoy a conversation, a yarn together with. I have um, been in connection with him for a little while now and follow his work and I'm very inspired to have him on today and I had so many questions to ask him and I hope you really enjoy today's conversation with Josh. Uh, We went off on many different tangents and conversations Um, It really filled my heart um, to spend that time with him. I also want to take this chance now to introduce him in a more formal way. He is a Warami man, farmer and academic. He pursues transformation through modern truth-telling, bringing new concepts to the forefront through acknowledgement of the past. His work combines the old and the new, weaving them together to develop new insights and findings. He's an entrepreneur and business advisor working predominantly in the Aboriginal cultural, agricultural and environmental spheres and has worked with numerous not-for-profits, businesses and government to develop change and bring people on a journey of change. Currently, Josh is working as a researcher at the University of Technology, Sydney while working on achieving a PhD from Charles Sturt University. He is the first Aboriginal person to conduct higher degree research in the agricultural sector, exploring the role of Indigenous identity and culture through Western agriculture. While he currently lives in Gloucester, his family has a farm at Nabiak, breeding Glidesdale horses and Brayford cattle. He and his family are regulars at local shows. So I hope you really enjoyed this episode of The Kitchen Table. G'day Josh, we've hit the record button. So firstly, how are you feeling today?
1: I'm well thanks, how are you?
0: Yeah good, thanks for jumping onto the show today. We've been wanting to have a chat for quite a while so I'm very excited to have you at the kitchen table, not quite physically at the kitchen <laughs> table today, <laughs> over Zoom, because where are you? What land are you uh, on?
1: So I'm here in Gloucester, which is War of My Country. Uh, it's country that um, has been farmed and looked after by War of My Ancestors uh, and my War My Ancestors for the last 60 plus thousand years. So this is home and I'm really privileged and honoured to live on country every day and connect with mob here, uh, my mob and uh, see the transition of this country, um, hopefully throughout my lifetime to then hand it on to the next generation.
0: Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, I hope you're prepared for the first question. <laughs> um, it's a pretty standard one I ask all my guests and I love the answers that I get. And I'm really curious to know what um, who would you have to share a meal at your kitchen table at home?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting one. I I think I look at this from from so many angles and um, so many thoughts, but really I I think um, kitchen tables and and their ability to have a yarn um, just comes quite naturally. So, um, you know, there there are so many incredible farmers out there that I just love to connect with and yeah I'm fortunate enough I guess to work with a lot of them so I I get to have a yarn with them all the time and learn from them and and I'm inspired by them constantly so you know there's a lot of um, people who who are unfortunately no longer with us I'd love to have a yarn with um, once again but certainly uh, where I am now I'm very fortunate to connect with a lot of people and um, really I, I just hope that I can continue having those conversations wherever I am and, and continue having those yarns.
0: Sounds like you wouldn't have one person at your table. Sounds like you'd Probably have not. your <laughs> <laughs> It's an all-out feast. your plate. That's
1: it. Yeah. As many people as we can. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and what would you serve? Like what's your what's your signature? Dish? You're a bit of a, mm. a cook, aren't you? Do you like your food? Uh,
1: I'm not a great cook, to be honest. I, I think, you know, I I do um do have a crack every now and then, but it's pretty, pretty poor and abysmal. Um, <laughs> but I think my my attempts and, and my thoughts on cooking. Uh, I'm a recipe follower, so uh, my mum was a maths teacher, and oh, you know there's something kind of good in just sitting down and doing a process, and I can follow a cookbook pretty well. Uh, so that's <laughs> kind of how I engage in cooking, and that means that I cook uh, some things fairly okay. Because I'm good at following a recipe.
0: <laughs> well, that's pretty good because some people can't even follow a recipe. So, you, know, <laughs> you go back to basics and you, you have to assume that no, that's not an easy thing to do. So, yeah. So, very proud of you, Josh. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> well, I really want to know what you're up to these days. What's, what's a project that you're really engaged in and very interested and passionate about at the moment?
1: Yeah, so for me, I think probably the main scope of work is my research. Uh, I'm looking at indigenous ag and trying to really understand what that looks like in Australia. Um, it's important for a whole heap of reasons. And I, I think, you know, indigenous people own 56 to 60% of Australia's land mass, if not more, we know that that's going to be a statistic that only increases um, due to outstanding land claims. And in New South Wales, I think, um, there's a report that has recently come out that said there's a 22 year backlog in land claims in New South Wales. So there's a lot of work to be done there um, that we mm. need to, to start following up on. And that means that the indigenous estate will only grow. We know that there's a, probably a lot of indigenous farmers out there uh, who are farming a whole heap of mainstream Western ag commodities, uh, but we don't actually have any statistics to quantify that. And we've never as an industry unfortunately asked Indigenous people if they would like to identify and what that means to them and I I think for me the real kicker in all this research and and the thing that keeps me up at night most is that there are less than six Indigenous ag graduates in Australia every year across every Mm -hmm. university Um, and while I know university is not everyone's cup of tea I think for me that's really concerning because we don't know how many young people are actually wanting to dive into ag. Uh, we know it's a problem with um, Western kids as well, but you know, for, for young mob who have so much opportunity, whether that's beyond indigenous held land or non-indigenous held land, whether it's working with indigenous companies or working with companies now that are just starting to get reconciliation action plans or other indigenous commitments, um, there's so much potential, but that pipeline just seems to be ignored at the moment.
0: Mm. yeah with the indigenous ownership of land i couldn't imagine there'd be a lot you know looking at the history of pre-colonization there was no ownership of land you know it was not it's a different model to our western culture so for indigenous to get into the farming or ag industry how is there access or channels for them to to do that
1: yeah, so I think, um, I mean, there's been a few things that's, that have happened. Um, I think, you know, the statistic I just said around, you know, up to 60% of land is through a Western system. And I think acknowledging that's important, obviously mob have a connection with all land, whether it's indigenous held or not mm-hmm. um, still today. So, uh, you know, it, but even through that Western system, even through the system that we, you know, kind of work to every day, there's still that quite large land Ownership and that protection of that country. Um, you know, I read this morning something like 80% of the world's biodiversity is kept in Indigenous held lands. Um, you know, and uh, I just don't think we understand the scale of, of that 60%, I guess. So, you know, Australian agricultural company AA Co., which is, you know, the oldest Western agricultural entity um, yeah, here. You know, they, they got gifted a million Warramai acres back in the early 1800s. And, you know, that's where my family um, connections in Western Ag started. But, you know, they're, a, they're, they're an industry that's been around for almost 200 years now and own 1% of Australia's land mass. So if you start thinking 60 times bigger than the biggest agricultural organisation in Australia, um, that's how much land indigenous people look after after yeah. uh, and still preserved through a western sense today and yeah. you know we talk about agriculture um, i think the statistic for ag is uh over half of australia's land masses used for food production um, we yeah. should definitely not be surprised by the fact that if that's 50 percent and the indigenous estate 60 percent um through the same legal system that there's got to be a lot of crossover and that means that there's a lot of agriculture currently practiced on indigenous lands.
0: yeah yeah uh, agriculture is such an interesting topic, really, for Australia because of the the style of the the kind of soils and um, the landscape in Australia. It's so diverse. It's such a massive continent with such mm. a um, a range of different landscapes to farm. You know, here on the east coast, you're you're located in Gloucester, just north of where I am, and it's a real green lush area in Australia, but when you go traveling inland or interstate, you realize actually it's, it's most of Australia is very different to what we know here on the East coast. Um, what's happening around those regions for ag and regenerative farming? Is that something that you're looking at as well as the regenerative farming movement in, in this as well?
1: Yeah, so I think, I mean, my research really specifically focuses on Indigenous ag, and to be honest, there's no definition or clear pathway forward for that, uh, with the exception of probably a bit of guidance that one of my uh, supervisors was able to give to me, um, you know, he's pretty well known, Stan Grant. Um, So, you know, he's an interesting thinker in this space, in the ag sector particularly, and... Uh, You know, he said to me, you know, an Indigenous person farming today is as much of an Indigenous person uh, as what he or she would have been over time. And I think for me, you know, whether that's an Indigenous person farming bush foods uh, and bush tucker um, anywhere kind of in Australia and a variety of products that we know grow right across Australia, um, a whole heap of different means and methods, six and a half thousand different native foods we have here. Yeah. Um, and I think we've only got 13 certified, or well, maybe 15 for um, human consumption in Australia. There's a lot of work to be done there. Yeah. Um, but whether they're farming bush foods or whether they're farming beef cattle or, you know, a, a cropping or, you know, a, a wide variety of different things, um, they're, they're still an Indigenous person farming. And I think mm-hmm. until we understand what that is and how we as mob define our involvement in ag, we're always going to be thought of as secondary um, mm-hmm. and think that we have to fit our models into somebody else's rather than acknowledging that we're out there doing our own thing uh, and that needs acknowledgement in itself.
0: Yeah, I think that's important to even um, to go further into is, you know, there's so much knowledge and history that Indigenous uh, landowners have that we can we don't even understand or have tapped Mm. into and to utilize that in our models. It's, you know, I know that you're a big um, visionary in that is to combine our story, our history together, both our histories and move Mm. forward into a better future. I think, you know, there's so much knowledge on both parties on both sides.
1: Yeah. And a lot of it was kind of shared in that early period too. And I think we, we forget about that. Um, You know, I, I think, it's fascinating when you start digging into history, just what happened on some of these lands. So war my country on the east coast of New South Wales, um, the Australian agricultural company, the, the biggest ag holder now thought that farming sheep on coastal country was a good idea because it reminded them of England. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, they started, you know, explorations here and started growing crops on some of the different um, areas and, you know, they're growing wheat and things like that, which makes no sense when we think about it um, these days, but that's where the ag technology and the thinking was at the, at the time. And we know that a lot of Indigenous people actually helped broker relationships between Western farmers and, and the landscape. So um, there's a whole heap of narratives of mob taking white farmers to water sources or showing them where the best food was for their cattle. Um, there, there was that real connection piece um, back during kind of point of, of contact and settlement by white people. And um, that kind of was, was very much nurtured uh, up until late, um, you know, the late 70s when Indigenous people started getting paid an equal wage and were forced off cattle farms and, and yeah. sheep properties. Um, you know, that, that relationship and that brokering was happening all the way up until then and probably still is now in some pockets.
0: Yeah, yeah. We 't haven't, we haven't delved into your story, Josh. How, <laughs> how did you get to where you are now you know you you're pretty young in your um in your story and where you're at you know I'm just so inspired by your passion deep commitment to to what you're doing what when what, how did you get what started you off and your family history it must have been something to do with your family history that's really propelled propelled you into this. Yeah so uh,
1: I know? mean, it probably wasn't to start with I, I think that's um it's been a later connection but you know I grew up on Maradjuri country down in, in a place called Borua. Um, you're they, from
0: down there. Yeah. yeah
1: I grew up there um spent my my youth um up until the age of probably 10 or 12 down there um, and grew up kind of you know on, on sheep around sheep country we lived in town but um, you know, the, the town was so connected that you would spend all your time on farms or with um, people just running around the town. And it wasn't until um, we, we moved up here back on, on country, um, my grandparents, my great-grandparents still had properties up here, um, mostly cattle farms. Uh, and my grandfather did, um, was a dairy farmer up here. And I, th- I think went through that and saw some of the the issues I think in, in agriculture with my one of my grandfathers um, and and clashed with that that whole notion that you know seeing what he was was doing um, certainly wasn't what I I thought was a perfect lifestyle. I think he um, you know had this script of how we lived each day, waking up at four and going to the dairy and coming back for the the news in the morning and doing a bit of work during the day and. Was back milking before coming back and watching the six o'clock news every night and going to sleep at 7 30. Like that, that definitely didn't appeal to me. And the stuff that was going on, on the on the farm that didn't sit with me even back then. Um so I I thought I'd become a lawyer um after a failed pilot um assessment or you know, <laughs> a failure of my thinking to become a pilot with the Air Force. I um
0: yeah, it's pretty I'd, strange. that
1: to get yeah (laughs) yeah um so I thought I'd become a lawyer I went to law school and was kind of like 80 percent through it um you know it's just starting my fifth year and got taken away as part of Young Farmers um up just close to here uh, up around Urala and just connected back with sheep and I, I don't know what it is but it um it screams home for me even though my family have been cattle farmers forever um you know for the last two, probably 200 years we've been farming cattle um on, on this country more in my country but there was something about that weekend and connecting with sheep that just really hit for me and uh i came back made some rush life decisions at that stage and um stuck uni out for another six months and then left uh and went and worked out west so yeah I, I think the the history element of it came later when I started digging uh for our story on these lands and you know where I wanted to head and um got to to really speak with some of my um grandparents and reflected on the the yarns that my great-grandparents told me that's when I knew that this is where I wanted to be, um, this connection to ag. And, um, yeah, I'm I'm just constantly inspired by my family's role in that and where I think the future could head uh, in that space. So that's what keeps mm. me connected to it now.
0: Yeah, sounds like the land called you pretty strongly back then. Yeah. 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 I, yeah, what lessons do you, what, what are some of the beautiful lessons you've learnt whilst being on land? You no, do you hear, are you that connected that you actually feel the spirit of the land and it moves through you, the creative side comes out and the ideas flow?
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say I'm an overly creative person, but I, um, you know, I, I think that acknowledgement and that connection with land is, is really important. And I, I see that in people. I think I, I see that, um, that joy and those insights coming out. Uh, one of the my favourite places is um, being back down in Borua My nan, um, her partner passed away a few years ago, and she just took on the farm and has been amazing. Uh, she's the most humble person um, in, in doing what she does. She always, you know, just goes with the flow and never talks herself up. But she's producing some really incredible sheep and wool down there. Um, And I think a fair few people get a bit of a shock when they get a a look behind the closed doors. Um, And yeah, I I see that with my parents and their connection to farming here, Um, how my parents got an Airbnb and we get guests mostly from the city come up. And I think that connection is really interesting and sharing our story with them and what connects to people. And I think there's still a lot of story left in these very ancient landscapes that so they're just waiting for us to uncover and keep engaging with to keep having that yarn so i'm excited by the opportunities that they that continues to present as well mm,
0: story is really powerful um i suppose that's why a podcast because um i find when to connect to people deeper is through story and sh- and listening like deep listening, giving a space for people to share their story um, and the story are all around us. And you, you'd be immersed in so much story. You know, you speak a lot, you meet a lot of people, you attend events um, on all different levels, you know, because of your background of academia, you you mix with quite, you know, high profile people and just everyday people. So, yeah, so what do you find in the story of us as the people moving into the future? What is the story we need to tell people to future-proof? Because I know you're big on climate change.
1: Yeah. And
0: what is our story around that? Are we, is there hope for our future? Is, you know, there's so much happening right now with the fires, uh, you know, pandemic, floods. It's quite in our face right now. I think a lot of people are anxious and they don't know what to do. So what? Is, what is yeah.
1: something? I think okay. I always find everyone's got a story, and it's always worth connecting with that. Um, if you can sit down and have a true yarn with someone, that's really powerful, and you will learn things about them and but also yourself that um, it is crucial. I think for ongoing development. So whether that's um, a, a farmer who you know is. In his sixties, who's having a crack at things, and um, you know, just doing the things that he's always done, or whether that's a young person who's super passionate about what the future might hold. I think, you know, that wide gamut doesn't matter their political background or their um, where they're from or, or what they do. That there's always a yarn there, and if you can connect with that yarn and get people started, then um, I think you always learn something. So. I'm always keen to try and sit down. um, I'm an introvert, but I'm I'm happy to listen to people have a yarn as much as they want um, because I think there's a lot that comes out of that.
0: Yeah.
1: And for me, I I think that there has to be a connection with the past to understand the future. And and storytelling plays an important role with that and the many patches of stories and and people's truths that sit within that. Um, So I often think you know, our, our mob have such a long standing connection and history with land um, that's still just sitting vacant. And, and I think there's a lot of insight still gleaned from stories that mob have that are so critical around what the, the future might look like um, that we need to start there. But in doing that, we also need to acknowledge truths that other people have got along the way and their histories and their connections to land and place. Um, so I, I had this conversation uh, last week with somebody that I think you know and a non-indigenous farmer might sit down and say we've been farming this land for four or five generations and I, I think there's a bit of a um, you know an inkling in some indigenous people to say oh yeah but we've been here forever but both histories are still important both truths are important and both acknowledgement of that landscape is is important and we need to interweave those two together to understand where we're at and what that future goal might be mm-hmm. so i often say yeah we've got a 60,000 year history indigenous history on all lands here we need to connect that to this next 60,000 years into the future but only together with using yeah. the best of mob knowledge and non-Indigenous knowledge around, you know, technology and, and, you know, even climate change, science and, you know, all the projections and understandings that we have in the world today, all of that needs to blend together to get to that next future 60,000 year state.
0: Yeah. Well, when you, you know, landholders have a love of land to be on, to be a farmer, you have to, you are a lover of the land. You wouldn't be Absolutely. there. Yep. Um, but I, I suppose there is that commercialization, that globalisation that has an effect. It trickles down to the pressures of farming now. So it, it, I suppose it's changed the landscape of farmers and their feel of the land, but that, you know, our farmers are our connection, our mm. con- for, for the consumer. Our farmers are our connection to the land because they know it so well. And we need to give them the space to be able to do their job well because they know the seasons, they know their land, not, not us consumers or governments or, yeah. Mm. So do farmers have a bit of a voice in our government, in our in our culture and society?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think farmers have a lot of opportunities to really do that. And I always think that, as I said, that grounding between farmers and, and the Indigenous mob around actually getting that, Long-term, that long-lands truth about land is important. I think there's a lot of synergies that come out of that that we actually need to start weaving together. But uh, I think farmers really have a good story to tell. Um, I, I think there is a really big role um, to play in the ag sector around connection between producers and, and consumers. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: and I, I think we, we probably don't do that well enough. I, I think there's a, a whole heap of work that needs to be done there um to really weave that story and there has to be uh, some kind of gelling of that and I, i think for me um what covid has fortunately done in some ways is push a lot of city people back to the country and that's made a lot of um or, or encourage a lot of the questions for the ag sector. You, you have a whole new demographic of people who are sitting in country towns saying, why are those old cockies doing that? And um, when they do get to ask that question, I think there's a lot of learning both ways that come out of that. And they're the questions that I think we need to really start understanding and acknowledging and actually taking to consumers. Um, I, I think there is that opening up that needs to happen of, of farms. We need to be really um open and transparent in what we do and sharing that yarn with audiences if they want to listen um, yeah and we we should also acknowledge that you know it's not always going to be perfect and we've got uh, ag as a sector has work to do in that as well so um you know that there, there is that kind of need for um good questioning to to start answering some of these questions that um that keep coming up and we need to be on the forefront of that and, and really get ahead of some of
0: them. Because mm. I, I know some, you know, particularly regenerative farmers who are very open-minded, um, they're changing the landscape of farming and knowledge on their land and opening it up to community, the Indigenous community within their region to gain that knowledge and connection. And mm-hmm. are you seeing that more and more with our farmers, that they're reaching out to understand their land more.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's happening in patches, nowhere near as much as what it needs to happen. And I think there's a, um, some opportunities there that, that both sides need to take on. Um, mm. I think for me, um, Nauru um, and the relationship that they've got with yeah. um, their non-Indigenous family and, and Paul house down there Provides a really interesting model, and you know, if somebody wants best practice in Australia, for me, that's it. Um, and I'm really clear on the work that Murray and his family are doing down there. It is fundamentally best practice um, in Australia at the moment, and that provides a really great opportunity. Um, and equally, I, I think um, you know, while that happens, kind of parallel to that, we know that Indigenous people are farming. Um, And probably interweaving that without kind of question or or without structures having to be in place. So I think um, as we continue to do work in this space and acknowledge that there are Indigenous people farming and are actually able to unearth who they are and what they're doing, um, there will be quite a good yarn that comes out of that uh, that we need to really grab hold of as a sector and start promoting and pushing.
0: Yeah. I want to go into... um... The future of our farming and uh, the challenges that we're facing with changes in our climate—is do you think it is climate change that we're experiencing? Is it by human um, human touch that we're now reached a capacity as a human or a species on this planet that we're actually changing our weather patterns, the way we're you know um, get you know farming It's not all about agriculture. The climate change, but our topsoil, for say, you know, that's something that I know is our topsoil we're losing at a fast rate. Mm-hmm. What's your stance on um, the climate change in our farming and how can we look to the history to improve our future?
1: Yeah, I think we, um, I mean, obviously, climate change is impacting our farms. There's absolutely no doubt about that. And we know. Um, there, there has been some research done a few years ago now that says that uh, the continuation of the impacts of climate change will only mean that we have to rely upon Indigenous health lands more uh, and yeah. for me that's a really important kind of acknowledgement that we need to start brokering relationships between Indigenous and non-Indigenous farmers now so that we can have that kind of um, farming backup plan in some ways uh, where people aren't farming Indigenous health lands so that There's the opportunities there in the future and whether that's mob going off and farming that land themselves or whether that's non Indigenous mob partnering. um, Those partnerships are so crucial that we start forming those now um, to ensure the longevity of that. But I think for me, we... So we know all that's happening. We we know the impacts of climate change is not just an ag thing. And I think it's hard in a lot of ways that we kind of think about our landscape now and think that that's how it's been forever. Mm. Um, And we don't often think that humans have already modified it for the last, particularly the last 200 years um, since white settlement. There's been no real acknowledgement, I think, that um, a whole heap of reasons, but particularly agriculture has meant, and and uh, population growth, um, has meant that we have really um, changed our landscapes in so many ways. So, um, the one, you know, I, I love hearing about and, and thinking about is the Hunter river, um, that goes through from Newcastle up to Raymond terrace, uh, and around, um, you know, it used to be like a, a small Creek, like it wasn't a river It wasn't this expansive place. And, um, you know, when the drought started happening, um, they started finding all these Aboriginal grinding grooves along the banks of the river that were covered in water because when they decided they'd increase the the height of the water and then we had a um, water that was kept in there, um, they just kind of destroyed all these these sites. So, you know, that kind of thinking about what what was there and um, how things have changed already, we we often don't acknowledge. And I think for me there's a lot there that we can gain Uh, and that just means that we think about the landscape in completely new ways, um, the ways that they've been managed for 60,000 years. Um, mm. And there's probably quite a few learnings that we can take from that to start implementing while at the same time, using those climate scientist projections to really understand what's going to happen. Um, I, th- I think it would be remiss of us as a population to think what we've got now is the same as what it's always been, and that's our baseline when our baseline was very different Certainly, prior to colonisation, and we've already altered it so much in 200 years that we need to start rethinking it.
0: Yeah, the population growth is just—it's you know we're very much in—you know for Australia, for the size of it, the population is quite small. But you Mm. know, the habitable side of Australia is small. And most of our population is on the east coast of Australia, but we're very much populating this side and um, the resources we're using are just, I don't know if we're, we're taking more than what we're giving back. Um, there's a lot of haste. Um, I don't know if people are really slowing down to actually look instead of, you know, rushing and putting band-aids, pen-aids, band-aids onto situations just to quickly solve a problem, but not looking at it as a long-term issue and how can we do this slowly and right?
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah. And there's literature that talk about, talks about this kind of instance of, you know, since colonization, when white settlers first came to Australia, there was this need to try and get finance uh and capital to you know the new colony uh as it was referred to And i think it's really fascinating what that actually resulted in was this overreporting reporting of uh, environmental assets uh back to to england to say um you know if you fund us to do all these projects in australia then we can send all this stuff back back to the motherland And i think yeah that that's kind of been continued on we've never really um, appreciated the, the natural assets we have here um, mm. and, and have certainly just kind of taken for granted how much I think at some stages and what that's meant. So I think, um, yeah, that kind of culture and, you know, 200 years of turning a quick buck has meant that we will have to pay for a longer period of time, but we can be quite clever in how we, um, you know, certainly fix a lot of that and, and think about that into the future.
0: Mm. Um, well, this is probably a really weird question to ask, just coming out of that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, just wanted to talk about um, reconciliation and the topic around. I don't know if this is something that you're happy to talk about, but how, how do you see us, or with the work that you're doing, do you think we can come to a point where we can work together? Is that coming? Is it? Are we doing that now? Um, we're not there yet do you think we can get to a point where we can work together
1: yeah well i know we have to um and so it's either going to be um done through good faith and um a good process now or it's going to be forced upon us uh i think is the the short answer um i mean the reconciliation movement's been around for about 25 years i know our organization that I'm the Indigenous co-chair of Reconciliation New South Wales has been around for quite some time um within that I think um it's exciting to see what our organization is doing at the moment uh, you know right, we've got events coming up at Parliament House and with wow. law firms and you know all these odd kind of pathways that it's good that reconciliation is starting to have an impact and at yeah. least people are thinking about that process Um, So for me, that's that's exciting. I think that there's a good opportunity to take advantage of a lot of that and um, really start building those connections going forward. And I think government, you know, our our political structures are really starting to think about this question in a lot more detail and doing a lot more work in this space. So uh, I think, you know, the next few years might be really telling for us as a nation and certainly in selected states uh, as to what that will look like and what a treaty process might look like and what truth telling might look like in that
0: yeah
1: um, and that will unearth a lot of opportunity but also a lot of hurt and I think we just need to be mindful that there, there will be this kind of bumpy ride as we go through that and we need to really come together and uh, acknowledge that that's going to happen be mindful that that's going to happen and have space for that uh, so that we can get to this incredible um, place into the future.
0: Mm. You're finding this because, uh, you know, there'd be really great champions in this conversation. Who who is who are the champions in this space of, you know, bringing you t- unity for people on this land? You know, Australia is just such a beautiful, unique place. Um, you know, I love this continent, this Australia. I've travelled it around and to see the places, to bond with it, to get to know it, you really feel like you have a belonging here. And that's something over my years is that feeling of belonging here in Australia. And talking to people in my community, there is this growing wish for unity and reconciliation. I think the conversation is getting to a point where we're ready, people are really wanting it, and we're looking at our leaders and the people in our communities. Who are driving this, and hope that the conversation is um, shared. Who are the champions in this that you're seeing? I know you are one of them. Um,
1: who- <laughs> I'm going to say that. No, I, I think for me, um, we we have a really good group at Reconciliation New South Wales. A, a really good mix of Indigenous and non-Indigenous people coming together and, and having a really good yarn, and I think that's important um to show that through government structures and other structures Um, but you know there there has been so many people over the the last 200 years that have led us to that enablement of having that conversation now that i i think it's um it it is really difficult to to mention people i i'm just very lucky to be filling in a spot i guess at the moment to enable another conversation to the future so Um, I look at it in that lens I you know I I hope we have big impact um, and our organization has big impact um, in on the next few years but um, you know there's really a lot of other young people who can take all that on into the future and hopefully have a um, better platform and ability to do a lot of that and I'm inspired by some of the government conversations I'm having now that we have government structures and and people within government who recognise that there's work to be done and are opening up platforms for that conversation to keep, you know, keep coming forward and and for people to keep having that yarn.
0: Yeah, it's very important because I know that a lot of these movements come from the ground up, you know, we don't necessarily, government doesn't necessarily determine everything and, you know, a lot of people don't have faith in government so they don't look to government to solve our problems, it comes from community, from groundwork, from people, you know, living it every day. Mm. Um, do you see that, you know, in your community, what does, you know, for me, community is everything, you know, building community, connecting into community, then, you know, it's the health of the lands, the health of the people, and keeping things, I suppose this is just from my point of view, keeping things regional rather than too large, um, do you see that um, that importance? Does that filter into governance that they see that the importance of community and supporting community in these decisions?
1: I, I think so. I think um, our communities are interesting. Like um, if I think about our, our mob here, um, you know, one of my people were placed on fossil um, mission um, um, you know, not that long ago. And, you know, and, and within the last two or three years, our people are only just starting to get access to the basic services that everyone else takes for granted. That's bin pickup, that's, um, you know, individual rates on houses, that's access to a safe drive, a road to access their house and to have lights up in the community. Um so that, you know, our role and our position in community you know, is really interesting. And I, I often ground those kind of bigger conversations in that reality that, um, you know, we, we have mob um, who, who are doing it tough all over. And, you know, that yarn about that's what the east coast of Australia foster as a tourist destination. You drive past Cabrera, um on the way to the shopping center So if you're going towards the, you're at the beach and you want to go to the shops, you have to drive past that. And that's a reality that's been sitting there for, uh, I don't know how many years, but only just starting to get that, um, those basic and fundamental, you know, human living rights kind of sorted. Mm. Um, So I think, you know, we, we have community champions who have been molded through this kind of, um scenario in these situations that are doing all they can to um you know play their role in not only advancing their own community rights and their rights within a a town let alone you know getting to to state and federal um, politics and other platforms so i think um yeah we're i think we're starting to, to to get a bit better like i think you know those those kind of fundamentals are being met and that means that we're going to have mob who are going to be able to be engaging those bigger conversations, those um, yarns that are so needed and we need a lot of our, our mob involved in those. Um, and, you know, I I think the role that I play and, and certainly I think um, a lot of the people I work with is really to open up those conversations for other mob. We're, we're not the experts, we're just... Um, you know, getting things warmed up and uh, allowing, or not allowing, just providing that ability for mob to step in whenever they're ready. So um, we'll keep kind of holding the fort until then, but I'm looking forward to really good mob coming and, you know, taking over all of these spaces and and really showing that breadth and depth of uh, Aboriginality and what that means and all the nuances and diversity within that uh, and to start challenging I think some of us that have been here for a while, and yeah, that's one of the things I struggle with, I think most with my, my PhDs that, um, you know, unfortunately there's not heaps of us out there. Um, I, and I would love nothing more than to be challenged um, so that I can get better, so that I can communicate better. And so that um, I can make sure that we do have a better environment for our mob. Uh, and while I can push that through my thoughts and where my research is heading me, it's always good to have somebody champion your heels and i um, pushing you to do better and vice versa. So that's where I, I hope we head within all these other conversations as well. that um, there is that kind of bigger nuance that, that deeper thinking that can take place and um, mm. more people sitting down having yarns so that we can really broaden that up and question assumptions
0: and thoughts. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, I wanted to ask you because of um, all the things that you, out of all the things that you've been involved in and done, what is the one thing that you're the most proudest of?
1: Yeah. um, Yeah. There's so many. I mean, I, I'm so humbled by the opportunities I've had and I've had some incredible mentors and, Teachers and, and people who have supported and helped facilitate a lot of those, uh, and I, I'm so thankful for that. Um, I think the the thing I'm most proud of is seeing my family um, still being here farming. That for me is really important. And you know, going down to my nan's place and sharing with her for the first time that she was doing that alone um, was like an absolute highlight for me. I think. Um, seeing her and her strength, um, sit there and whip cheerers into line and, um, you know, just doing, you know, so well, her, you know, her wool check was great that year and just her ability to, um, to lead that. And I think, you know, at the same time as mourning the loss of her partner, um, who, you know, would, would probably be one of the like forerunners for Gen Ag, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, and I just, you know, I, I think, you know, growing up um, even, um, down there and uh, we weren't ever privy to what happened on the farm. Like it was kind of this, it was spoken in to hush tones and it's only since I got his reading list, uh, like some of his books. Um, and I can, I can see why he's done things on his farm. And, you know, he was reading future eaters, um, and reading Alan savory, and you know, all these people like back in the day and, and just never talked about what he was doing. And for me seeing that and seeing my nan farming the way that she's passionate about, um, it is super inspiring to me. And that's what I'm most proud of.
0: Yeah. Oh, wow. I just love that. (laughs) such a beautiful story, (laughs) You know, when it's um, when your family, when you can be that connected to your family and heritage of where you come from and still see it and be part of it, because that's something that you will bring in to your future continually. It's just, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. That's beautiful. Um, The opposite side of that question, because I'm very intrigued by. by who you are and what you um, love and your passion. Where where do you see your energies going now? What what is something that you want to invest your energies into? That's something a bit different, or is it continuation of what you're doing now? But what what do you see yourself doing in the next, you know, two to five years or even further into the future?
1: Yeah, I see the probably the short time is a bit of a catch up. Um, it's about doing my, um, you know hopefully doing my confirmation for my PhD soon and getting that underway. I'm so excited by the chance to talk to more across the country about their relationship and experiences with ag. And I think capturing that in a place so that that baseline again is there so that we can, can to start really um, those yarns about indigenous ag into the future. That, that makes me really happy. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, a part of it, I mean, is just hanging out with young kids and, and seeing what their thoughts of ag is. So, you know, next week I've got the week off, I'm going to hang out at wing and beef week I'm on the committee for that. Um, and see, you know, I think we've got 400 young kids coming to show cattle yeah. and, um, you know, see that whole process. And that that for me is really inspiring that there's that next generation coming through. Um, we've got a heavy horse event in a month uh, that, I'm really excited by um, that I, I think that connection back with the audience that remember Clyde Styles and, and heavy horses being a, a focal point, um, that's really cool. And so it's as much about doing all that uh, and getting energy, I think from all that kind of work, which will hopefully help me take my energy and um, my thinking forward and really connect with that that next few years after. Um, and at the same time as all that's happening I'd really love to buy a farm some uh, (laughs) stage when the the banks are a bit nicer and um, when things settle down a bit so hopefully um, you know all of that happened and all of that is is really for this bigger picture that uh, when I die I want there to be space for more of my people to farm more of my land and um, you know that's creating a, a spot that you know, enables mob to just come and hang out and connect with and get their hands in the dirt and have a look at their involvement in, in Western ag as well, and really tell that story um, in the physical place here um, where Western agriculture has done so much damage in 200 years. That's really the, um, you know, well, there's a lot of ag around Sydney. I, I think this area's Really, is one of the birthplaces of Western Ag in Australia, and I think it's from you know there's a lot of opportunity, I guess, for us to tell that that yarn, and then our ability to say, well, actually, fellows were there side by side, um, doing it just as good, if not better, the whole time. So, um, for me, that's that's where I hope my life leads, and if I can do something to establish it, then I'll be very happy.
0: I'm gonna say that really ignites your spirit, yeah yeah i can see your face just in both those conversations you know from the past to the future yeah i can see that really means a lot to you i feel we are running out of a bit of time i've probably taken a lot of your time already oh you're (laughs) all right that's fine
1: i'm happy to yarn all day
0: (laughs) i know you're a great speaker (laughs) um okay I just I'd love to ask this question too it's the um the final question just um because I get such different responses and I'm really intrigued to hear what resonates with you in this moment is um what's a a piece of literature or a quote poem anything that you really love that you'd like to share with our audience today
1: yeah, for me, I, I think I struggled for a long time finding our place in, in agriculture as, as a Black person. And I think the um, that quote from, from Stan is really my testament that, you know, an, an Aboriginal person farming today is as much Aboriginal as what he or she would have been over time. And that respects and I think really acknowledges the fluidity of culture that we as Aboriginal people have. Um, and where that future needs to take us Uh, and I think that's the highlight for me if we can start start having people in the cities thinking that oh there's a lot of uh, indigenous people out there on horseback around the cattle or or whatever Um, that narrative is as important to me as mob out there farming bush foods if not more important to show that we still belong here and You know, we might not have the same skin tone. We might not have our language as much as I'd like or the the connection um, might be fraught with um, other private interests that people have or a a few layers of concrete over the top of our lands. But we're um, still here. We're still proud of who we are as a people and we're so important to those future conversations that we need to be included.
0: Mm. I'm with you on that one. Um, it's very important, those conversations and that feeling, you know, it's not all about our skin type at all. It's about our spirit, It's about how we connect to others through our spirit and, yeah, because spirit's everywhere, spirit's in everything, and that's where I love the learnings from our Indigenous culture is uh, it helps, I think, because a lot of us have, you know, to go on a tangent a bit, we've come from another country, another land, my heritage is from, you know, Ireland. It's a different land. And I feel displaced from that culture because I've never been there. Now I'm on this continent. It's my home. But, yeah, there's this displacement amongst a lot of us. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think there is a lot of ability to recognise that and, um, and share love and connection around where we are now to um, help that future um, yarn, I think. So uh, yeah, I'm amazed and spent a lot of time researching the U S and their ability to deal with everything that has happened there. And, And particularly their ag story is really fascinating to me. And one that we don't ever think about in Australia, I think. Um, we certainly take a lot of learnings from over there, but don't acknowledge the, the kind of um, cultural history that underpins all that. And um, I know that there's a yarn there that, um, yeah, talks about, you know, despite all the horrific activities, all the impacts that's happened, um, that connection and love of country um, in, in all its different means, it gives us a ground to connect with for, for future states. So if we can all appreciate and, and funnel energy into that, then we will have that grounding for
0: that next year. Yeah. Thanks, Josh. You've been amazing. I've really loved this conversation and I really appreciate you accepting the invitation to join me today. Um having a great yarn it's meant a lot to me. Um I'm on a learning journey and you're one of my Teachers, I suppose. You know, you know, through listening, and you know, I've never um, had the opportunity to hear you in person, but you know, through the social media, we've got so many great people we can connect with and learn through. I think we're always learning. Mm. That's just keeping our minds open. But thank, thank you, Josh.
1: No, no worries. A pleasure's mine.
0: <laughs> thank you. See you later. Bye. Awesome. See ya. Thanks for tuning in to The Kitchen Table today. Hope you enjoyed the conversation and it inspires a new conversation around your own kitchen table with friends and family. Till next time, peace and plants.